If you remember um, <clears throat> last week, uh, last Wednesday night, we talked about the Apostle Paul uh, told us how that we can rejoice. Uh, he's coming to the end of uh, this book. And you remember the beginning of this book, he, dis- he talked about how much he loved the church at Philippi and how thankful he was for them and how that he wanted to be with them and how they made him so very happy and how they contributed so mightily to his work. Well, now that he's coming to the end of the book of Philippians, he's coming full circle, if you will. He's bringing it back to them, and he and gets to the end of the chapter. He starts talking about how they had, how he had, how they had helped him, and so he's kind of come full circle. He's discovered, discussed everything that he needs to discuss, and now he's coming back to the very beginning of the book, and really the reason why he wrote this book, and that is he was thankful to the church at Philippi. It's almost like he wanted to thank, write them a thank you letter, and then as he began writing them a thank you letter, he kept thinking, well, by the way, let me tell you some other things you need to know uh, because I love this church. But now as he was winding down uh, this book, he's coming back full circle. And so he, last week we talked about how it was so important for him that they understood that they needed to rejoice. They needed to rejoice always, and again I say rejoice, and he proceeded to explain to them how they can rejoice, no matter what their circumstances are in life. And uh, first of all, he told, told them in verse 5 that they need to uh, be gentle toward all people, try to have a good relationship with all people, and that will help with, you, with your rejoicing. Uh, he reminded them that the Lord is at hand. In other words, either the Lord is beside them always. He's, he's there to help them, and, but also the Lord is coming back, and that gives you a reason to rejoice. And then in verse 6, he really drives the point home that we should not worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He said the key to it all is prayer. So he's talked about being uh, gentle to everyone. Remember about the Lord being nearby. When you worry about things, you need to pray to God about them, and uh, you'll have the peace of God. And then finally in verse 8, he talks about if you want to have a life of rejoicing, you need to have a certain kind of mindset. And we're not going to take the time to go through uh, all those things again and what they mean. Uh, Some of the words in the King James are a little deceiving, but once again, we don't have time to do that today. But it's all about your mindset. Paul says, if you want to rejoice and always rejoice in life, it's not so much about outward things, it's about inward things. It's about having the right kind of mindset and looking for rejoicing in everything. And then he drives the point home in verse 9, where we stopped last week, uh, when he talks about the fact that if you want an example of this thing actually working, where you, I can rejoice, or you can rejoice no matter what circumstances are in life, he's saying, look at me. Look at my situation. And I'm the one that's saying, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And of course, Paul, when he wrote these words, he was in prison. He was awaiting whether, uh, to find out whether or not he was going to be executed. And even in prison, in those dire circumstances, he could say these words, rejoice in the Lord always, and again say rejoice, not because he was so happy about where he was, but he was so happy about the way that he was thinking and how he looked at things and his positive outlook on life. Uh, Any questions or comments on that before we start picking up the text again? Everybody got that and understand that. 
Okay. Well, after saying that, he uses verse 10 to, to tie something else in and bring it back to the church at Philippi. He says, but. Now, here's a man that just got through saying, hey, I have nothing to worry about because I, uh, being gentle to all men, I have the right mindset. I know the Lord is at hand. When I do worry about things, I pray about it, and God gives me the peace I need. But then he says, but. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care for me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Remember the letter started off with him thanking the church at Philippi for everything that they had done for him. Uh, They had a fellowship in the gospel, and the point he is making, of course, that they had sent money to him, had taken care of him on his missionary journeys. When other churches didn't care to support him, he could always count on the church at Philippi. And that's the way this letter began. And so uh, they had sent him Epaphroditus and had sent him a large sum of money while he was in prison. And now he's been telling them that, that he basically says, I have no worries. Now think about that for a moment. Here's a man who's basically saying, hey, I don't worry about anything. Um, I rejoicing always, even in my situation, I'm happy. Why would you think you need to say this next thing as far as the church at Philippi? What, what is the wrong impression he might have left them with? Yeah, yeah, like he like, oh, by the way, since I don't worry about anything, um, I'm not worried about you sending me some money. <laughs> I mean, really, that's what's going on. That's why he uses the word but here. Uh, he wants them to, he, he's going to make sure they understand that every single thing they had done for him, and that's how this letter started, everything they had done for him, he appreciates. And so he didn't want to leave them with the wrong impression that somehow or another that even though, um, and he's going to emphasize this some more, that he is self-sufficient as far as spiritual things are concerned, and, and he can be happy in whatever situation he's in, but yet he appreciates so very much um, uh, what they are doing for him. In fact, um, everything that he's going to be saying here in verse 10 and, and, and the next couple of verses um, have to do with the fact that here is a, a, the church at Philippi, and they, as they're, as they're reading these previous verses, they could picture Paul, and they almost think, well, Paul's just such a happy-lucky guy that we don't need to send him anything, or he doesn't appreciate what, what uh, they have sent. But notice what he says, and see if we can break it down, because it's kind of hard in the King James to understand just a little bit. He says, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. Now, when you first read that, that now at the last, it almost sounds like Paul is chiding them a little bit. What kind of impression could you get from reading that that you might think that, that he's saying that maybe is not correct? Exactly right. Well, you finally got some money here after all this time. Um, But that's not what he's saying. It carries with it more of the idea of the end of the journey. Uh, Either at the end of their journey, talking about Epaphroditus got there finally. Remember, Epaphroditus is the one who brought the money to them, and he's letting them know that their mission has been accomplished. Mission accomplished. Or maybe... Uh, He's talking about himself, and now that he is at the end of his journey, if you will. 
Uh, you remember, it took Paul a long time to get to Rome. He was captured in Jerusalem, and then he went to Caesarea, and then he went on this long trip, and then he got shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and he finally ended up in the city of three uh, rivers, or three taverns, and then he went from three taverns, and he finally ended up in Rome. So he's finally at the end of his journey, and now the money they needed to send him, he can take. So he's not chiding them. He's saying everything's working out the way that it's supposed to work out. You've brought your money. Either Paphroditus brought it. He's finished his, he's completed his mission, and in some ways I've completed my mission. I'm here where I'm supposed to be now. Mike, you keep it like you want to say something. You have that look on your face. All right, very good. I like that. Anything else anybody want to add? Okay, well, he, he says that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. Now, flourish there is an unusual word in the Greek. I'm just curious, anybody have anything other than flourish? What's that? Renewed? Revived? The word in the Greek is the word for a flower blossoming. And um, it carries with it not only the idea of new life, and that's why some translations translate it revive or renew, because uh, when a flower blooms, there's a sense that it is a, it's new life, and so that's, that's the idea. But also what is going on here is something that is um, beautiful. He's saying that your, your care of me has been made beautiful again or have been revived again is the idea because there is now new life. And um, the, again, there is the idea that, well, you can even see it in verse um, 16 of the same chapter, where he says, For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto, unto my necessity. He's talking about this is something they have always done and will continue to do, but this situation now that I'm writing about is like a re-blossoming. It's like, it's like a beautiful thing that has come to pass again and renewed again. And the reason why he's saying that is because of the latter part of uh, verse 10. He said, he's saying, but ye lacked opportunity. In other words, I know you want to send me, wanted to send me money. That was the mission you had was to take care of me. You knew my situation in prison and you, you knew that I needed your help, uh, but you haven't been able to. Uh, you wanted to, but you've lacked opportunity. Now, why in the world did they lack opportunity? Okay, and I would add to that before you get to your next thought that I just talked about the fact this man was all over the place. You know, you know it's hard to send money to somebody who doesn't have a permanent address. And that carries more of the idea where it says at last here, he's finally at a permanent address, if you will, even if it's prison, instead of being moved by soldiers everywhere. But what else did you want to add? Oh, Okay. Uh, and Michael hit it on the head. He's either talking about they didn't have opportunity because of the fact that they just didn't have the means. Um, if you read First um, and Second Corinthians, Paul talks a lot about the church at Philippi and how giving they were and how that they uh, first gave themselves to the Lord. Uh, but he talks about how that they went beyond what they had because they didn't have a whole lot of money. So they maybe didn't have the money to send right away and took them a while to work to raise the money to send to Paul. It may be also that they didn't have anybody to send to Paul. 
I mean, that's quite a commitment to tell somebody in the church, hey, we want you to make a 600-mile journey to Rome in that day and age over the oceans and how treacherous that is, and we want you to go stay with this guy in prison for a while, and then eventually when things are finished up, then you can come back. Any volunteers? Anybody want to go? Well, thankfully, there was somebody by the name of Epaphroditus that wanted to go. And so that's maybe what they were waiting on. Or it could just simply be that Paul was in a situation that he didn't have a permanent mailing address. I mean, how do you send money to somebody that's out on a ship somewhere? Um, how do you send money to somebody who's shipwrecked? Uh, how, you know, how do you, you can't. You've got to wait till they're, they're, where he's in a place where he has stayed long enough that you know he's going to be there. And that's how it all came about. Mike, you have something else? Oh, okay. You just had that look on you like. <laughs> That's right. Well, I can see, I can see Epaphroditus now. He goes to one city, and all he finds on the bedpost is Paul was here, and then, <laughs> or a sign on the outside of the motel, Paul slept here. But um, other than that, though, he, they couldn't find it. So he's saying that finally everything has come to completion. I've got your money. I know this is something that you wanted to do. It has blossomed in my life. It has revived me. It has given me new life. But then, to make sure that they don't lose sight of what he just said, notice what he does. He had just spent all this time talking about how that he could rejoice. And, but then he wants to make sure they know that he appreciates everything that they do, but to get, make sure they don't get too far off on what it means to be in Christ. Notice what he says in verse uh, 11. He starts the verse off with not, like, you know, don't misunderstand me. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therefore with to be content, or therefore to be content. Uh, Paul wants them to understand that, you know, uh, no matter my circumstances in life, because of what I've already told you, about how to rejoice. It's not about outward circumstances. It's about the inward man. That no matter what circumstances I find myself, I can still be content. Now, I don't know what state he was in. I don't know if Roman was divided up into states. Um, if he was here, he'd be in the state of North Carolina. No, I'm teasing. The state he's talking about his condition. And he uses an interesting uh, word there. The word content um, is a word that the Stoics used. The day that Paul lived in was a day that was full of philosophers. This was the age of Aristotle. This was the age of Socrates. Paul was contemporaries of those. And he uses a word here in Greek that typically a Christian wouldn't use. It was a philosophical word that the Stoics used. Now, somebody who has a knowledge of Greek philosophy, someone tell me who a Stoic was. You basically had two camps in the philosophical world at that time. You had the Epicureans and you had the Stoics. And they believed two different opposite things about the body and human flesh. All right, anybody want to say anything? I want, if somebody knows this, I don't want to steal your thunder. Jeff, what do you want to say? All right. The Epicureans believed that because the flesh was the flesh, that you should not deny the flesh anything. And they believed that you should indulge the flesh as much as possible because you're flesh. And even today, we use that phrase to describe something that 
uh, is delightful to the, uh, uh, to the uh, flesh, um, especially in the realm of food. Um, you'll see restaurants that sometimes they're called Epicurean restaurants, or you'll uh, have somebody come in like Jeremy after eating a, a nice meal somewhere, and he'll say, that was such an Epicurean delight. And I don't know if he knows what that big word means or not, but, uh, but uh, what he's saying is, this is something that really satisfied my appetite, really satisfied my flesh. Well, the Stoics were exactly the opposite. They're, they wanted to deny the flesh from everything. Uh, they believed that the only way to find happiness in life was to, to, was to remove all appetites, remove all needs whatsoever. And so um, they would d- just simply deny themselves as much as they could with the hopes of killing all desire and appetite. Their, their form, I don't know a better word to use it, but their form of nirvana or total peacefulness was the point in their life where they had no appetite whatsoever for anything. And so Paul uses this word, and he's using it in a strong way to emphasize the point. When he says, um, not that I speak in respect to want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He is telling us that, that he, is, he is happy. He doesn't need anything. Now, he uses this word stoic not because he's thinking of himself as a stoic, but he's overemphasizing the point of what he's going to say in verse 13. And we'll come to that in just a moment. The stoics work from a human standpoint to say that they don't need anything. Paul is talking from a spiritual standpoint because of Jesus Christ. All my needs are satisfied. So he's setting them up to hear this, and he's setting us up to, to hear this. Um, the idea that uh, he just really doesn't need anything because of the fact that it ties in all the previous verses. He has learned to rejoice, and again I say rejoice, and it's all in the Lord. And if you got that, it really doesn't matter what kind of state the outside world throws at you, is his point. In fact... Um, Somebody that's real quick, maybe it has a, uh, like Frankie with a phone or something like that. Look up First uh, Timothy uh, chapter 6 and read verses 6 through 8 for me. And that kind of gives you the idea of what Paul is talking about here. All right. Here he's kind of making a commentary on the very things he wrote here when he uses the word content. He says, contentment with godliness is great gain. And he, here he gives the explanation. For we have brought nothing into this world, and we certainly aren't going to carry anything out. And as long as some of your basic needs are being met, that you have some kind of food so in order to sustain life, and you have some kind of clothing to keep you warm. And notice he doesn't say having the very best food. It doesn't say having the very best clothing. But basically what he's saying is, as long as your basic elementary needs are met, guess what? You really have everything that you're supposed to have. Nobody has been told that they get more than what they're supposed to get. Other than just the basic needs of life, that's all you should ever expect from life. Why? Because when you were born, you didn't have anything that you brought with you. And when you die, you're certainly not going to be able to take anything with you. And so therefore, anything you get in life is a blessing And that should make you content. 
And that's what he's driving at here with the uh, Philippian brethren. He appreciates their money so much. It's like an added bonus. He says, it made my life blossom again, flourish again. But you know, the point I want you to understand, Philippian brethren, is that no matter what we're given in life, no matter what we have in life, we can still rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And therefore, I've learned to be content no matter what situation I'm in. In fact, he drives on the, uh, the point in verse 12 that in every conceivable situation Paul can think of, he can still rejoice and he can still be content. Notice what verse 12 says. He says, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And what he's doing here is he's covering every realm of the spectrum, if you will, as far as life is concerned. Now, we don't use the word abased very often, but here's one end of the extreme he's wanting us to think about. What does the word abased mean? Anybody know what that word means? Or maybe you have something different in your Bible? There you go. That's it. He's talking about being brought as low as a person can possibly be bought. The lowest wrong of life. He says, I can still be happy. I can still rejoice. I can still be content. Now, when I was reading it, I thought about the fact that there's probably never been a time in my life, and I probably dare say there's never been a time in any of your life where you ever could say that you have been abased, brought to the very lowest point of a person's circumstance. The reason being, we live in a country where um, even if you uh, were homeless, there are still some situations where you can have some of your uh, basic needs uh, provided. Uh, You aren't living in a pig pen, if you will, uh, wanting to eat the husk like the prodigal son did. There are some people who live in other countries who live a life that would be called a life of abasement. They are on the lowest point of any possible human existence. And it's hard for us to understand and appreciate that because even if we don't think that we have a whole lot, we are still like millionaires compared to the rest of the world. But the point that Paul wants you to see, he wants you to, show, wants you to see this broad realm. If you go to the lowest point of human existence... The lowest possible point, Paul says, I'm still content. Or if you take it to the other end, as he says here, and I know how to abound. If you take it all the way to the other extreme, I know how to be content. Now, how in the world would somebody have to learn how to be content if they had every single thing they wanted? How does that work? How does that make sense with what Paul's saying? All right. Are people who are, who are rich, are they always happy? Why not, Eric? All right. Very good. And it's funny. I know this works with me, and I have to fight this, but you know what? No matter how much I get, I always want a little bit more. The richest person in the world, guess what? He wants a little bit more. We seem to never be satisfied, even if we have everything. And so Paul was saying, you've got to learn how to be content in that situation too. And um, because, guess what? All those things that now you're abounding in, 
It could go the other way. In other words, circumstances don't matter. It's the point he's driving home. In fact, he says, everywhere, regardless of where he may be, whether he's in the church at Philippi with the brethren he loves, or whether he's sitting in a prison cell with a Roman soldier chained right next to him, no matter where he is, he's going to be content. He's going to rejoice, and again I say rejoice. And he goes on and says, in all things, no matter what circumstances happen, no matter what happens to me, I'm going to be able to rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice, and I'm going to be content in the situation I'm in. To drive the point home any further, he says, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. I think it's interesting that he uses the word, I am instructed. Where does his contentment come from? I'm sorry, I heard somebody say something. The Lord. In fact, remember, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. In other words, contentment is not something that naturally comes to someone. Contentment is something you learn. Uh, Our natural human instincts says to look out for number one. I've got to make sure I get everything that I get. I've got to grab for all the gusto I can get. Uh, Whoever has the most toys at the end wins. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the natural human instinct. To learn contentment, whether you have nothing or you have everything, is something that you learn. And, of course, the great learning that Paul understood, and he doesn't mention this specifically, but those Philippian brethren picked up on this, and if we're real smart, we could pick up on something here. When he says, I am instructed, had he said anything in this letter that maybe had instructed him how to go from having everything to having nothing? Any kind of thing he brought up, any person he might have mentioned. Uh, Well, I bet if we went back and looked at chapter 2 and began reading at verse 5 and read it through verse 9, what do we have there? What do we got, Eric? Jesus Christ, who was in heaven equal with God, But he emptied himself and made himself of no reputation and humbled himself and became a slave to mankind and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Remember, that was something that Paul was wanting those people at Philippi to learn. One of the things that he emphasized was that disunity in a church comes from selfishness. Selfishness comes from not being content with the situation that you're in. That you want something, regardless of what it might affect, how it might affect the whole. And so he used as an example Jesus Christ. That instructed him that if Jesus Christ could do that, went from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum, then he could learn how to be content in this life and the things that he had. Michael, do you want to say something? Okay, I saw your hand raise up on your cup there. I guess you just like a coffee cup a lot of it. But anyway, so he's, he's saying that um, everything, whatever the situation, 
I can be content. Now, he's emphasized how much he appreciates the money. Um, It has renewed his life. has made his life blossom there in prison. They have supplied some needs that he needed. But he didn't want them to get too far away from the point that he was trying to impress upon them that if the money didn't get there, even as much as he needed it, he could still rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And here is the answer to it all. Verse 13, here is the opposite of the Stoics. The Stoics said it was all about human will. Paul says, no, it's about Christ. He says, I can do all things through Christ which strengthened me. Now, having been exposed to the Bible at an early age, I've seen this verse probably a million times. But I don't think people fully appreciate what it means. It's easy to say, I can do all things through Jesus Christ that strengtheneth me, but somebody please help me here. What does that mean? Okay, very good, very, very good. But someone help me with some practical application. Tied into what Paul just said. But Jamie said is exactly right. That is what's being said here. Um, Julie, I saw your hand first, and we'll get Mr. Till's shirt here. Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow will take care of itself, is exactly what he said. The birds, the birds uh, get fed. The lily of the field is more beautiful than any clothes you're ever going to wear, and God takes care of all those. Don't be like those pagans who worry about such things, but you put your trust, well, as verse 33 says of Matthew 6, but... Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Yes, Jeremy. The thing I get concerned about is we have platitudes, but we really don't understand the attitude. How does Christ strengthen us? Where's, what is it talking about when it says Christ strengthen me? That's a nice platitude. That's something good to say. We can even make it our motto. But what does it really mean? What, what is the strength that lies behind the idea that no matter what happens to me on this earth, I can rejoice? All right? First of all, we have salvation, and that's the most important thing. Uh, no matter what else we have, if we don't have salvation, it's, it's just a waste of time. We could be the richest man on the face of this earth, but one day we're going to die. That's it. Uh, We could have nothing on the face of this earth. But if I've got forgiveness and in the right relationship with God, then I've got everything. Jeff, you want to add something else? Um, I'm sure there's some of you, and this is kind of a silly illustration to parallel what Jeff's saying, but I'm sure there's some of you who have jobs that maybe aren't always everything that you want them to be, but you say to yourself, if I could just make it to the weekend, I think I'm going to be all right. Uh, especially if you've got something to look forward to on the weekend. I think I'm going to be all right. Well, the same thing is with life. If you have eternal life, um, man, I'm pretty abased today. I'm pretty low. I'm pretty humbled. Um, I'm in a bad situation, but if I can just hang on, I'm going to have a home in heaven. So Christ strengthens you, first of all, because I believe he is there beside you. Uh, he already said the Lord is at hand. The Lord is beside you. He, he's there to be your friend. He is the great physician, if, I, if you will. But he also strengthens us because of what he has done. 
fact that he died on the cross, first of all, shows me that I'm loved more by him than any other person on the face of the earth. There may be other people who disappoint me, other people who don't show me the love that I deserve, that other people don't treat me right, but here is someone who gave his life for me. He left heaven to come to this earth, and he did that for me as an individual. And also I think about the fact that no matter what life throws at me, this is not my home. Uh, We are just strangers and pilgrims passing through the song we sing, uh, This World is Not My Home. It's all about that idea that this is not what is awaiting me. And if that's the case, if you can understand that, then you can have the contentment he's talking about. And so uh, there's there's a home waiting for me, and therefore I can do all things um through Jesus Christ, which strengthened me. Well, we're running out of time. And so let's just look at verse 14, and we'll just stop there. Notice Paul uses the word beginning verse 14, notwithstanding. Now, why do you think he used that word notwithstanding? (laughs) Uh It's like he's going back and forth. He doesn't want to miss his point that he wants them to understand how to be content no matter what life has. But but guys, I really do appreciate what you did for me. I don't want you to think that I don't love the fact that you love me so much that you gave me these things that help supply my needs. In fact, he says, notwithstanding, you have well done. What you did was very, very good. You did a good job that ye did communicate with my affliction. Uh, the word communicate there is very archaic in the King James. What's, the, some, what's something else somebody has? All right, share my trouble. In other words, uh, they understood what Paul was going through. They understood that he was in prison. They understood that he was afflicted. They understood that he was having troubles. Uh, He wasn't getting to sit at home there in the city of Philippi in his easy chair watching TV. Um, He was in a prison chain to a soldier. But they understood that. And because of that, they did a good job in sending him this money. Don't lose sight of the fact that we need to be content and rejoice always no matter what our circumstances. But guys, brothers and sisters in Christ, I appreciate so very much what you've done for me. And what's amazing when you start looking back at the church at Philippi and how they affected Paul's life, he first came in contact with them in Acts 16. And the implication is that from that point on, from the very time he lived in the city. You remember when he first converted the first people in Philippi that immediately there was a lady in his, there that he converted that took care of Paul, took care of his needs, gave him a place to live, and it never stopped is the implication. They always were providing care for Paul. He, they were always sending money to him. And so he wanted to make sure that, that they understood and knew that what they'd done was a good thing. But at the same time, if the money hadn't come... Because of the fact that I have Christ Jesus, I have learned to be content no matter what state I'm in. I can truly say, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. And we'll stop there unless somebody has some comments. Yes, James? It is, because the opposite proves um, true that no matter, um, well, all we have to do, Frank's going to be talking to us about the book of Ecclesiastes here in a little while. And that whole book is about the fact that Solomon tried to find everything he could possibly find under the sun to give him contentment. And the bottom line when he gets done, I don't want to steal your thunder here, but it comes up so many times in the book you're going to have to use it anyway. 
He says, is vanity, all is vanity. Literally, all is emptiness. He never really finds any satisfaction, never really finds any contentment. In fact, he gets to the end of the book, and he says, here's the whole conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. It's a good point. Now, let's stop there.